So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 8. It says this. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Let's pray for Keith as he comes and shares that word with us. Lord, we pray for your servant Keith. We pray for his work in Ashford. We pray for his work in that church. Lord, we thank you that he has the time to come here and spend time with us in Staines. We thank you for the relationship between Laylam, Staines and Ashford that enables that to happen. And we pray now as he shares your word with us, Lord, that we each may take something away that we may apply to our lives so that we may grow closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you again. And it will be helpful as ever to... uh, Keep your Bibles open at the passage, 1197, 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 4. Billy, could you put the first slide up, or Max? So there we go. Um, This picture shows park runners at Bedfont Lakes. Do we have any park runners here this morning? Oh, nice. Well done. You can't see yourself there, can you? you go right all over now for those of you who don't know park run is a five kilometer saturday morning run um it began uh, with just 13 runners in bushy park on the uh 2nd of october 2004 and it's now a global phenomenon it takes place in 22 countries across the world hundreds and hundreds of parks um if not thousands so why do i mention park run Well, one of the metaphors used in the Bible for the Christian life is that of running the race. This is how the writer to the Hebrews puts it. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So over January this year, we are uh, in our annual pulpit series. We're looking at three phases of the race. Now, Nick kicked the series off, didn't he, for you guys, uh, with keeping going from uh, Philippians chapter 3. How do we maintain our focus 
in the Christian life. Then last week, Andy Saville, uh, he spoke on how the race starts from Galatians chapter 3. And uh, I'm looking at finishing the race well from 2 Timothy 4. No church, by the way, got it in exactly the right order, okay? ACC, we've gone backwards. So I started with the finish and they're ending today with the start. So if that's a bit bizarre, then there we go. Um, before we dig in, and we're just going to look at two verses, we're looking at verse 7 and 8, um, let's set the scene, because all Bible passages, there's a context to them. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, is in prison in Rome, and he faces imminent execution for his faith. That's why he says in verse 6, the time for my departure it, it has come, the time has come for my departure. He means his death. Now, Paul had recruited Timothy many, many years before into ministry, and Paul served as his mentor. Timothy is now the pastor of the church in Ephesus, which is part of modern-day Turkey, but the church is going through a bit of a rough patch. Firstly, we discover there are some false teachers operating within the church. Um, he mentions a couple of them in chapter 2, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and we're told how their teaching is spreading like gangrene. That's a pretty nasty image, isn't it? But it's not healthy, is it? And how these guys had wandered from the truth. So there's problems within the church, but also the wider context of the society within which the, that church in, in Ephesus is operating is not exactly conducive to the gospel. We're told in chapter 3, verse 4, that people are generally lovers of pleasure rather than being lovers of God. And that could describe uh, Britain today, couldn't it? So with such challenging circumstances, Timothy could easily lose focus and lose heart. That's why Paul tells him very clearly in the first verses that were read to preach the word. Keep preaching the truth. You see, what Paul's doing here is he's passing the baton on. To use another running image, if, it, if it's a relay, Paul is passing the ministry baton on to his successor, Timothy, because Paul's about to end. So we're thinking this morning about finishing the race well. And there's two questions, if you can put the next slide up, Matt, slide up. Um, two questions. Firstly, how do we finish well? And secondly, why do we finish well? So firstly, how are we to finish well? Now, whenever we face some sort of task or challenge, what many of us do is we look for people who perhaps have, have already displayed some skill in that area. So as young parents, Caroline and I, um, we looked to some neighbours on our street in Ealing where we lived uh, who were from our church. Their girls were all much older than our kids. They were a good example of parents. So we very much looked to that couple as an example to us. Maybe in the workplace, whether formally or informally, we see someone who does the job we do, and we think they're really rather good at it. I'm going to keep an eye on them. Maybe in health and fitness, we maybe watch videos and, of, of people who are good at doing what we'd like to do, and we watch them. And we, uh, like some of you maybe, uh, we have a dog. Uh, he's two years old. He's still sort of being trained. We watch the odd dog video. I'm not saying we're particularly good at it, but uh, you look at people who are good at stuff. So... Here, Paul is saying to Timothy, look at me. 
Look at the example I am. In chapter uh, 3, verse 10, he says this. You, Timothy, however, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, my persecutions, my sufferings. Timothy has observed Paul for many years. And now at the end, Paul is signing off. He's passing the baton on to Timothy. And he says this. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now the tense of those three verbs, fought, finished, kept, is the perfect tense. It means job done. So we're going to look at each of them in turn, because this is what it means to finish well. Firstly, I fought the good fight. The Christian life is a fight. Now, we wouldn't necessarily encourage people to fight, would we? But this is a good fight, he says. It's a fight worth fighting. And in any fight, there's an opponent or an enemy, isn't there? And in the Christian life, there are three enemies we face on a daily basis. The first enemy is our old sinful nature, that if we give him or her half a chance, uh, it will manifest itself in ungodliness in our life. That may not be sort of gross, outward, immoral living. It's more likely to be rather subtle, inward stuff, feeding on what we know to be wrong. It could be ungodly thought patterns, sexual fantasies, self-pity, bitterness, jealousy. But that's what's going to happen. If left unchecked, we will sort of spiral downwards if we don't tackle that particular enemy. That's why Paul says elsewhere, we're to put it to death. So that's the first enemy in the fight, our old sinful nature. The second enemy in the fight is the world we live in. The world which will draw us away from Christ if we follow its, its norms and its values. Paul refers to a man just across the page in verse 10 called Demas, and he's actually deserted Paul. He's abandoned him, and uh, Paul says he loved the world. That was the characteristic of Demas. He loved the world. He deserted Paul in the ministry. Now, John, in his first letter, he says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we could hear those words, and we think, well, does that mean we're called to go off-grid and go and all live on a remote Scottish island where there's no, you know, we're not going to be impacted by the world at all? Well, no. Some people have fallen into that trap and they've discovered the world still exists on a remote Scottish island. No, it means on a daily basis we recognise the world we live in has values and norms which run counter to those of the kingdom. So we have to see that and we have to fight it. And the third enemy we face on a daily basis is Satan, who Peter tells us prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He never takes a day off. He works 24-7. He sows his lies into our heads and we sometimes believe them. He is always against the purposes of God. He is always against truth. He never stops. So the Christian life is a fight. So at the beginning of this year, are you up for a fight? You up for a fight? 
Football fans sometimes, when they're egging on the opposing fans, they sort of say, oh, come on, give us a, you know, give us a fight. We've got to be up for a fight. Daily basis, we're going to face those three enemies. The old sinful nature, the world we live in, and Satan himself. So, finishing well, firstly, means fighting the good fight. Secondly, it means finishing the race. The Christian life is not a hundred-meter sprint. It's more akin to a marathon. And almost everyone who runs a marathon, almost everyone, except for perhaps four of the men and four of the women in the London Marathon, none of the other 40,000 runners are interested, really, in winning the race, because it's not going to happen. They're not really interested in beating anyone else. And most of them aren't that bothered what their time is, okay? What is almost everyone focused on when they run the marathon? One word? Finishing. That's all that matters. It's finishing. Because if you peg out after 20 miles, you haven't finished. You don't go around telling all your mates the next week, hey, I ran 20 of the 26.2 miles of the marathon. Oh, so you didn't finish. It's finishing, isn't it? Finishing the race. Paul says, I have finished the race. Finishing the race, what does that mean? A few things. Firstly, it means, as the writer to the Hebrews says, discarding everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Two different things. So good things that we let hinder us in our walk, they get in the way. Runners don't wear tons and tons of clothing. They discard it because it gets in the way. So there might be some good things in our lives that we've allowed to become almost like ultimate things, idols. They get in the way. But also, he says, the sin that entangles us, habits, sinful habits, that they stop us running well. So that's the first thing, discarding those things. Secondly, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ. Again, the writer to Hebrews describes the Lord Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith, beginning and end. Runners, good runners, don't tend to run looking all around at everything else. They'll trip over, they'll fall. They keep their eyes fixed. And we must do that. Thirdly, finishing well means persevering. Persevering through the trials that will come in life. And they will come. There's nothing about being a Christian that insulates us from the troubles of life and the trials of life. Indeed, the scriptures maintain that those trials, in, in a sense, are for a, a refining, purifying, and strengthening of our faith. And some of you may be facing trials at the moment. And finishing well also requires the encouragement of others. Some Christians seem to think that there is, uh, it, it's pretty macho to be able to run the race alone. Impossible. Lone Ranger Christianity is not authentic biblical Christianity. We need each other. And if the last two and a half years hasn't shown us that more than ever, I don't know what will. We need each other. So a few things there about finishing well. So it's fighting the good fight. It's finishing the race. And lastly, it's keeping the faith. Paul says, I have kept the faith. 
Now, earlier in this letter, he says this to Timothy, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Now, the good deposit or treasure that is entrusted to Timothy is, in fact, the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Christian life is a treasure. I want you to imagine that a distant relative, aunt or uncle, whatever, they leave you a vase in their will. Doesn't look like you're particularly excited by that. Okay. You, they leave you a vase in, in their will, and you, you put the dog treats in it, and it's on the windowsill. That's what you think of the vase. Then a mate comes round one day. You haven't seen him or her for a while, and they happen to be experts in Ming vases. And they see your dog treat vase on the windowsill and said, how long have you had that? And said, oh, a few months, an old distant relative left it to me. And they say, oh, can I have a little look? So they pick it up, they have a look. They said, do you know how much this is worth? I said, no. It's worth over £100,000. This is an ancient Ming vase. What are you going to do with the dog treats? What are you going to do with that vase? Is it going back on the windowsill in the kitchen? You're going to wrap it up, aren't you? You're going to pop it in a box. You're going to put it away somewhere safe and sound. Because that thing you've suddenly discovered is precious. It's a treasure. At the very heart of the gospel, at the very heart of the Christian life, is the gospel. The good news. And as with the precious Ming vase, we are to guard the gospel. So when it comes under attack from false teachers like was happening in Ephesus from Hymenaeus and Philetus, we guard it, we protect it. We're not being unkind or nasty to other people, but we are treasuring the good news. We are savoring it. And, most importantly, we are holding it firm to the very end. That's what it means to keep the faith, is to keep believing the gospel. Now, it'd be easy to hear these three things of, of finishing well and, and conclude, well, it's down to kind of my efforts. You know, if I fight the good fight, you know, if I, if I keep going, if I'm dogged, if, you know, if I just knuckle down, then it'll, be, it'll all be fine. Well, yes and no. The Christian life does require effort. But no, in a sense that what it really requires to finish well is an ever-deepening um, love for and cherishing of Christ and the good news. Tim Keller, who writes an excellent book called The Prodigal God, he's an American pastor, uh, he writes this in, in The Prodigal God. He says, the gospel is therefore not just the ABCs of the Christian life, the sort of beginning, but the A to Z, or he would probably say the A to Z of the Christian life. Why, by that, he's saying it's the gospel from beginning to end. So this notion that sort of the gospel is just the way in and we need something else, you know, no. The truth of Christ, beginning 
to end. He's the author. He's the perfecter. So to keep the faith. Three things. How do we finish well? Fighting the good fight daily. Finishing the race. Keeping going. And keeping the faith. Keeping hold of Christ and the gospel. That's how we do it. Why? Why are we to finish well? Well, let's remind ourselves of the context. Paul's in prison. He knows that very shortly the Roman emperor Nero is going to declare him guilty and condemn him to death. Now, that would, I would imagine, cause most of us to be somewhat despairing and full of dread. But not Paul. Why not? Well, he knows that very soon there's going to be a magnificent reversal to Nero's uh, condemnation. As verse 8 declares, he says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to also to all who've longed for his appearing. So what's going to happen? Paul wants to finish well because awaiting him, he says, is the crown. That's the same word used for the laurel wreath that would be put on the head of the victor in, in a marathon as a prize or a reward. But this, we're told, is a crown of righteousness. Not a reward for Paul's righteous life, but rather it's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. You see, Emperor Nero would declare him guilty and deserving of death. But the Lord Jesus, the righteous judge, will declare Paul righteous. What was his by faith through his life and all those trials will at that point be his in totality. Righteous. Now, when's this going to happen? Well, Paul says that it's on that day. The day of Christ's appearing. When he comes again. And an essential part of Paul's finishing well is clearly his anticipation of Christ's return. A return that will herald a new heaven and a new earth. A return that will see all injustices reversed. A time when sin and suffering and death will be no more. The old order of things will pass away completely. And who's this going to happen to? Who will receive this crown of righteousness? Well, Paul's excited that he will, but he also says to all who've longed for his appearing. Those who've longed for the return of Christ. Now, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that the only people who are going to long for his return are those who've experienced the glorious benefits of his first coming. If we've turned and put our trust in him as a saviour for our sins, as the Lord of our life and our greatest treasure, then we will long for his return. If the first part is not even on the radar, the second certainly won't be. So perhaps this morning, if you would say you're not yet a follower of Christ, then, then do uncover John. It's brilliant. Start soon. It's a wonderful way of looking at the person and work of Christ through the miracles in John especially. But the first, if the first coming isn't on the radar, the second certainly won't be. But the Bible ends, the penultimate verse of the Bible, 
the Lord Jesus says this to John. He says, yes, I am coming soon. And then in the scriptures we read, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So if Paul, 2,000 years ago, could live with an anticipation of Christ's return, how much more should we be, given it's more imminent now? Let me ask you a question as we wrap up. Is Christ's return on your radar at all? Does it, does it shape your thinking at all? Or is it sort of a truth you kind of know, but it's sort of parked over there every now and again, dust it down, have a think about it. But is it on your radar? And we're going to watch a, a short little video clip to help us perhaps think about it a bit more. Max. Right. What was that? <coughs> Queens, that's right. Does anyone know the date? Oh, Sally. I wish I had a Mars bar for you. <laughs> exactly. September the 19th, last year, the Queen's Coffin travelling along the A30 in Ashford before final burial at Windsor Castle. It's a day... I will never forget. I drove out along that road very early that morning, taking the dog for a walk in Windsor Great Park, because I thought, I don't know where I'm going to get out there later on. And um, I drove along the A30, and do you know what? All of the graffiti on the bridges out to the M25, it had all been painted over nicely. There wasn't any evidence of any graffiti. Do you know what? All the litter had gone. There's no fly to evidence of fly tipping, all gone. The grass, the verges, had all been cut. And the bushes and trees had all been trimmed. It was amazing, wasn't it? How did the council get their act together to do that? Well, because cameras would show that stretch of the A30 and the bit going on to the uh, M25, all around the world that later that day, wouldn't they? Billions of people would see that stretch of road. And our council wisely thought, we'd better get prepared. That morning, there were 100-plus police officers gathered by the road. They'd come from forces all around to police that stretch of where the coffin was going to pass. And as time approached, thousands of us made our way up, didn't we, to the A30 or the next bit out to the M25. Hands up if you went and saw the coffin go past at some place. Probably over half of us, okay? Four to five deep there in Ashford, both sides of the road. Normal life completely stopped, didn't it, on September the 19th. 
This event dominated absolutely everything else. Everything else. Why? Because the coffin of our late queen was passing by and none of us wanted to miss it, did we? Those are the lengths we were prepared to go for our late monarch. If that's what we'll do for a dead monarch, how much more prepared should we be for the king returning? Now, I can only answer for myself. And it's not on my radar as much as it should be. Am I living in a manner that I would be pleased that he would return? As part of my prayers on a daily basis, come Lord Jesus. Or is it rather an embarrassed, not up to the mark, not living it. Too many other things are a, a priority. But if you think how prepared we were for a dead monarch, how much more prepared should we be? for the promised return of the Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for the promise in your word that you who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. May this glorious truth spur us on each day to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the faith. Thank you for your Holy Spirit at work and your people equipping us. Thank you too for the body of Christ and the encouragement we are to be to one another. I pray that uh, we would all grow throughout this year in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.